my favorite people. I admire her so much. She has a heart for God. She has a, she's filled with incredible wisdom. She's a worshiper, as you guys well know. She's also an amazing attorney. She will strike fear in the hearts of the bad guys in the courtroom. Uh, but today, she's just going to spread some love of God in here. And so let's give a big hand to our very own Ms. Bruna Sanchez. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I have a topic today that I, I think goes nicely with the Lenten season that we're in. Um, Scott has been preaching for the last several weeks about certain characteristics that we should fast. Rather than fasting your phone or screens or food for Lent, let's try fasting certain less desirable characteristics, um, at least for this 40 days of Lent. Maybe forever, but whatever you can manage, if just this first 40 days is all you can do, that's fine. Uh, today I want to talk about a virtue that might help us get rid of all those bad characteristics. And what I want to talk about today is humility. Uh, and to be clear, what I don't want to talk about today is pride. If you want to know more about the sin of pride, I'm sure there are 8 million sermons, studies, resources out there just a mere Google away. So many sermons exist on the sin of pride, and it makes you wonder why we keep having to go back to it. Like, we just can't seem to quit it. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because we're just refugees in the wilderness in need of daily bread. But maybe, too, it's because for every thousand sermons on the sin of pride, there's maybe one on the virtue of humility. It's a bit of an underdeveloped topic because from what I can tell, we're usually satisfied defining it as the absence of pride. So we talk a lot about how to be not prideful. We don't talk as much about how to be humble. So let's spend some time today discussing something that we are for, which is the virtue of humility, rather than something that we are against, which is the sin of pride, and see if we can't come to a better understanding. Uh, we'll start by seeking a working definition of humility, and then because every virtue or divine attribute like peace or love or forgiveness is bi-directional, we'll talk about how humility helps us in our relationship with God, how humility uh, looks in our relationship with each other. Okay, so defining humility, where do we look for definitions? Uh, first thought, dictionary, right? Um, these books, these dictionaries are assembled by scholars with advanced degrees in linguistics. They know where all the words came from. And they put them together in a book so that we could find out what they mean. Let's check and see how they've defined Humility. Freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. I do love the word freedom. It's a great word. Freedom. But in this case, it might just be a fancier way of saying not pride. And, uh, but the dictionary then says, hey, wait, no, you know, this is the noun form. What you're looking for is the adjective form. Go look at the word humble. Okay, let's go. Not proud or haughty. Not arrogant or assertive. I don't know if I agree with the assertive one. 
<laughs> but this is the dictionary, people. At this point, I feel like someone at Webster's must have gone, okay, wait, 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 wait. It's lazy to define a thing by its opposite, uh, so let's figure something else out. So they did a second definition, which is reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. Now, I do think this gets us closer, uh, but it falls short to the mark because it's describing characteristics of humility rather than telling us what humility actually is. I can be deferential and submissive in a particular moment, but be far from humble. So let's leave the dictionary behind us. Clearly, humanity on its own is not helping us define this virtue. Let's go instead to the Bible. It's a good place to start. <laughs> uh, if anyone in here knows of a scripture that specifically says humility is blank, come tell me after, because I promise I looked for it. Uh, the closest I got was some translations translate Proverbs 22.4 as humility is the fear of the Lord, its wages are riches and honor in life. But other translations, including all of the Spanish ones that I saw, uh, translate by flipping the sentence around, which is the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. And uh, since I don't read ancient Hebrew, that's kind of where my inquiry ended. Also, if you do read ancient Hebrew, please come talk to me after as well, because I want to be your friend. So since we have no bright line definition, even in the Bible. Let's start with a story. In Genesis 18, 16 through 33, I'm not going to read any of it, but this is the story where God reveals to Abraham that he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham asks the Lord to spare the city if he finds 50, no wait, 45. What about 40? Could we do 30? How about 20? Even 10 righteous people. God, if we find 10 righteous people, will you not, will you just leave the city alone? God says, yeah, okay. Um, a couple of summers ago, Scott preached a great series called Counting Stars. And there's a great um, explanation of this moment. So I'm not going to go too far into exactly what was happening. But Scott described Abraham's actions here as kind of haggling, haggling with God, which I think is a sweet little way of saying Abraham was straight up arguing with God. So how can a story about arguing with God help us understand the virtue of humility? And I think it's, it's important to remember at this point who Abraham is. Abraham is the divinely hand-picked human whose descendants were to become God's people. God acknowledges, before he even tells him about Sodom and Gomorrah, God's kind of talking to himself and says, well, I have started this relationship with Abraham. I should probably tell him what's about to go down. At this moment in history, no human knew God, knew God better than Abraham. But also, at this point in Abraham's life, Abraham only had promises from God. Isaac's birth, Isaac was the child who would be the representation of these promises. Isaac's birth had just been foretold 
like the day before. Abraham is arguing with God here not to be contentious, not to control the outcome of what happens at Sodom and Gomorrah, not to leverage his relationship for control, but to demonstrate to God that Abraham was relying on the consistency of God's character. Surely, God, you're not going to kill the innocent with the guilty. You keep your promises, don't you? He wanted to make sure that God, that, or, or let God know that he trusted God to remain God, true, faithful, loving, even in the midst of his wrath and justice. Because humility is a positional understanding of who God is. And I say positional because positional in God is in relation to us. God is holy. God is perfect. God is infinite. And who are we? We are fallible. We are finite. And we are flawed. And that can see... Oh, okay, good. And that can seem... Uh, like kind of a bummer to start with, as if, I mean, how do, you, how do you even begin to have a relationship with the holy and the perfect and the infinite if you are the fallible, finite, and flawed? Humility is a positional understanding of who God is and a reliance on God's character rather than our own resources. So relying on God's character, that God is who he says he is, and that he will be who he says he is, even in the face of destruction, even in the face of justice, he's still good and loving and true. So this is the definition of humility I'm working with. And it, if you read this one, it has like a lot less to do with pride or with only pride than we might have thought at first. Is it the opposite of pride, which could be called reliance only on yourself? Sure. But it's also the inverse of jealousy, which says, well, I'm just as good as they are. Why did they get the promotion? Or envy, which says, well, it must be nice for them to have all that money. I guess God just wants to bless them and not me. Or greed, which tells us that I won't be okay until I have more money, even though right now I have everything I need. Worry, which says I have to control my own world so that bad things don't happen. Or anxiety, which says I'm pretty much relying on bad things being imminent. I want to I zoom in a little bit on anxiety because that's my particular story of how humility has, um, I, want to, I wrote down affected, but how humility has freed my relationship with God. Uh, for anxiety, if your thing is not anxiety, if you don't deal with anxiety, please feel free to insert any of the other things I just said, um, because there's a 90% chance that humility is also applicable to those things. 
Um, I was trying to come up with an example for people who don't have anxiety, who don't suffer from anxiety, as like a, as a constant chronic thing, everybody gets anxious. But if you don't suffer with it chronically, you may not understand uh, that living life with anxiety is um, like living constantly at DEFCON 4. Uh, the military DEFCON levels, because some, we get it twisted a lot, DEFCON levels go from, ooh, go from five, which is nothing's wrong and everything's normal, to one, which is uh, the nuclear blast is imminent. Those are the DEFCON levels. I feel like there should be more gradations in the middle. It should be like a 10-point scale. It just seems really fast to get to, from five to one. <laughs> but so if five is nothing wrong and one is nuclear blast is imminent, anxiety is like living at DEFCON 4. It's just a heightened awareness. Uh, nothing's actually happening that's wrong. You're just much more aware of potential threats. Uh, and that if you were at DEFCON 5, they wouldn't be considered threats at all. So you're more aware of imaginary threats when you have anxiety. And this was me up until about a year ago. Uh, and I, I mean, <laughs> I still struggle with it sometimes. Like if you send me a text that says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Can we, can we talk later tonight? And you don't tell me what you want to talk about. <laughs> the non-anxiety response is to say, sure, I'm free at 8.30, smiley face, talk then. Uh, but that's not what I do. I immediately kick back into DEFCON 4 because why? What's wrong? What do you, why can't you just tell me now? And then I can spend the rest of the day agonizing about it. And then we can, we can discuss later when we're both free. <laughs> that's DEFCON 4. And I lived that way at DEFCON 4 for about, I want to say like four years, I think, give or take a few months, uh, right up until about a year ago. Uh, what happened a year ago, you ask? DEFCON 1! <laughs> DEFCON 1 happened a year ago. Lockdown, joblessness, plague, civil unrest, hatred and venom and fear that it seemed like was never going to go away. The threats were everywhere, and I couldn't do anything about them. I'd like to point out here that since most anxiety sufferers see threats that are imaginary to begin with, I was never able to do anything about them because they were imaginary. They were imaginary threats. But anxiety often couples with worry which is its active state. And worry fools you into thinking you have control even over imaginary things that your brain has created as threats. But the magnitude of the COVID fallout and, and everything else in 2020, y'all were there, you know what happened, <laughs> was so stunning a blow uh, that I was forced to admit my own helplessness. My battered, defeated heart <laughs> was just really fertile soil for the work of humility to begin. Because the moment you recognize your complete and utter helplessness, it's much easier to see and become aware of the power that was always standing right next to you. It was always there. 
The Bible says, I lift my eyes to the hills. That's where my help comes from. It says, I lift my eyes. Which means, you got to be in the valley (laughs) to be able to see your help coming from the hills. If you try and teeter at the top of a mountain of your own resources, which, if we're honest, is really just a heap of pride and jealousy and worry and envy and anxiety, then the help can't get to you. Because God's not here for our glory. He's not interested in the testimony of someone who says they got here all by themselves and they did it on their own. It's his glory that holds the universe together. And you over here trying to get stuff done on your own is just leaving you stranded, kiddo. (laughs) Because what humility does is it places us in a ready state for God to be able to use. 1 Peter 5, excuse me, yep, 5, 6 through 7, says, humble yourself under God's power so he may raise you up. Throw all your anxiety onto him, for he cares for you. Place yourself entirely in his grasp, so that when you are raised, it is he who will get the glory and not you. You say, I don't want to don't, don't feel helpless. I don't want to feel like I'm not in control. This is where you have to remember and rely upon his character. I love the back half of this verse so much. (laughs) Throw your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Throw. Throw your anxiety. Throw it. Fling it away from you. Let God catch it. He will catch it. Why? Because of who he is. Because of his character. Because he cares for you. You don't want to be helpless? Then recognize where your help comes from. And fling yourself into his hands. And I want to point out that this is an all or nothing reliance. God's not here for halfway. If you only fling yourself halfway off of a cliff... You're not going to make it to the other side. (laughs) Fling yourself all the way to the other side, all the way to safety. Don't give it just a little tiny jump. Okay, maybe. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, the Israelites are being reminded to remember the long road on which the Lord your God led you during these 40 years in the desert so he could humble you, testing you to find out what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you the manna neither you nor your ancestors had ever experienced so he could teach you that people don't live on bread alone. No, they live based on whatever the Lord says. Talk about a complete reliance. If the manna didn't fall from heaven, tens of thousands of people didn't eat that day. They couldn't even store up the manna for tomorrow 
It was only good for one day. And that's still the plan, folks. Even now in the era of the Holy Spirit who is constantly with us, we must wake every day with the knowledge that we are capable of nothing on our own. Hungry for whatever God has for us. That's why the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Because, friends, that's how often we need them. There are lots of examples um, of uh, people humbling themselves, becoming humble before the Lord in the Bible. Quite a few of them are contained in the Old Testament um, and often deal with a a person or a city who has... uh, done enough wrong that they are now under God's wrath. Um, a couple of them are uh, like King Ahab in First Kings. He was under God's wrath. It's a whole long story about he was under God's wrath until he humbled himself before the Lord. And then, of course, the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh to tell them, hey, you need to repent. You are under God's wrath and you're, it's about to be Sodom and Gomorrah up in here. And Uh, (laughs) once Jonah finally got to Nineveh, which is a whole other story, uh, the Ninevites decided, okay, you're you're right. Yes, let's, and the whole city, we're told in Jonah 3, humbled itself. And by humbling itself, caused the Lord to stay his hand. Now here's the wrong takeaway from these stories. The wrong takeaway is God is mad at me, and so I must cower in servile fear, lest he strike me down. That's the wrong takeaway. Instead, consider that God is holy, and his presence does not abide sin. It is sin that brings wrath. Not you, baby. What turns away wrath, then, is not your debasement or humiliation. That's not what he's after. But your acknowledgement of his holiness and your need of his mercy and salvation. When retribution is justly due, we can rely on the character of God for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The right takeaway from these stories is that humility can move the heart of heaven. In 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14, God says, When I close the sky so there's no rain, or I order locusts to consume the land, or I send a plague against my people. Does anybody ever stop here and go, Dang, God. (laughs) Take it easy. When I send a plague against my people, if my people who belong to me will humbly pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Do you know, I think I I might have heard more in my life about being bold in prayer, about being faith-filled in prayer, than I ever heard about being humble in prayer. As if being humble would not move heaven so much as faith would. 
But I think it's important to point out that sometimes the word faith doesn't mean, isn't being used correctly. Hang with me. Sometimes the word faith gets commercialized and becomes synonymous with just mere belief. That if you believe real hard that something's going to happen, then it will. And then if it doesn't, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. This faith, quote-unquote, for the podcast because you can't see my air quotes, this faith is not faith. This faith is powerless because at its root, it depends on you, oh human child. <laughs> Real faith. The faith described in Hebrews 11 the faith that gives substance to our hopes and stands as evidence for the things we can't see. The faith that trusts in God and relies on his love and provision for us, even in the moments when there is zero evidence around us of his love or provision. The faith that we can hold up as a shield in the middle of the fiery darts of the enemy, that faith is indistinguishable from humility. So let's remember this when we pray. Let's remind ourselves who he is. Let's remember, and this was a big one for me. Like I said, y'all might be ahead of me, but let's remember why we bow our heads. It's not for personal privacy. It's not to set up a cone of silence between you and the big guy. It's an acknowledgement that we are petitioning the king. That he holds our lives in his hands. And that we are relying on his good name. His good character. As shown to us in his word. And revealed to us by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Pray in this way. With humility. With this positional awareness of who God is and that he loves us and he has promised to hear, forgive, and heal. Let's talk about the sideways direction of humility, relating to other people. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a socially awkward person so to stand here in front of you and try to tell y'all like how to get along <laughs> when I know I'm not very good at it. Uh, I just hope that Jesus is preaching and not me. All right. Humility is not like, like most divine attributes, like most virtues, is not a being state. It is a doing state. It's to. Humility is toward someone else. Honestly, I think that it's probably the key to living together in unity without requiring uniformity, like Pastor Scott is always talking to us about. So we've always been, we've all been in situations where someone else, it's never you, 
but someone else is in the way. And uh, something you're trying to achieve. And, uh, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, they're just, they're just in the way. And so you think, uh, I, need to, I need to get around them. I, maybe I could go above them and try to, you know, get to my goal. Uh, but I think Jesus might ask us, instead of going above, have you considered going lower? Hang on. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 instructs us to adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself I don't know why it doesn't say again, but I'm going to add again, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was king of going lower. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Despite this embodiment of humility before them, you know who was super bad at it? The disciples. Twice, twice, twice in Luke. It's almost the exact same scripture both times. An argument arose among the disciples about who would be considered the greatest among them. One of these, I'd like to point out, takes place at the Last Supper. Like at the Last Supper, Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me. And then they're like, immediately start fighting about who the best one is and who would be, well, I guess, uh, connotatively, who would the, who's the worst one? Who's the bad one? And well, then as long as we're talking about it, who's the best? <laughs> Both times, Jesus says, y'all are, y'all are missing it. You're missing it. In Luke 9, he gives a, a different examples each time, but in Luke 9, he calls a little child over as an example to teach them and says, whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me, Jesus, King of heaven, (laughs) and therefore the one who sent me. Whoever is least among you will be the greatest. I think here that Jesus is not actually, or maybe not only talking about being sweet to little kids, although there are just our numerous examples that he loved him some babies. <laughs> but Jesus chose as an example for these grown-ups who were fighting about who was better or worse, chose as an example the most statusless and dependent being on earth, which is a human child. Nothing is more dependent than a human child. And in addition to this statuslessness of a child, I think there's an additional layer to Jesus' analogy here that we need to talk about. Think about the humility of a child. Um, And if you're a parent and you're like, have you met my child? (laughs) I had a nephew who from like, I think age, I think it was like age 14 to present. He's in college now. Uh, would walk into a room and declare immediately that he was awesome. (laughs) Every time he walked in a room. 
Uh, so remember, I'm not talking about their personality. I'm talking about positionally, the humility of a child. Our working definition of humility is a positional awareness of and trust in the character of God. Has your kid ever said to you, but you promised that's their reliance on your character? Can we talk for a moment about the terrors of being a human parent? (laughs) It can be incredibly wounding to a kid when their parents miss the mark, even on trivial things. You said we were going to the park. Oh, I'm sorry, kiddo. Mama got busy. But you promised. Oh. (laughs) Untrustworthy parents like for real, like unsafe situations, untrustworthy parents can keep us from trusting God's character when we're grown up. Sometimes, uh, you know, your home was safe and your parents were Christian professing, but also untrustworthy in their witness to you about who God was and makes you grow up thinking, I don't know if Jesus is safe. If following Jesus turns me into that, I don't think Jesus is safe. Sometimes you do everything right as a parent. You're consistent, the home is safe, and you witness correctly about God, but your kiddo just doesn't know him personally. As parents, then, we must rely on our Father God with a mother's heart who loves our babies more than we do. You didn't think it was possible, but it is. He loves them more than we do. And is always faithful. And that was a bit of a tangent. Just because parenting is hard. And we have to remember sometimes that uh, we're, we're not doing it alone. We've been given these kiddos. But at the end of the day, they're his. Mostly what Jesus is trying to say to the disciples. Bring it back on track here. Is that in his kingdom, status doesn't exist. In the kingdom of God, status doesn't exist. So when Jesus says the greatest among you needs to be the least among you, that doesn't mean for you to make sure that you're always the one at the back of the line. And no, 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 you can go ahead of me. And I'm just, I'm just here to just desert. And you don't have to bow and cower. Because status doesn't exist. The least has no status. Greatest and least are not vocabulary terms in the kingdom of God. We are equal. We are all brothers and sisters. And Romans 12 just says it better than I can. So I'm going to read you a chunk of it. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, be reasonable. Think, oh, excuse me, be reasonable since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are all one body in Christ, and individually, we belong to each other. Can we pause for a moment on that phrase? Individually, which means I get to be me and you get to be you. 
And we don't have to look the same or be the same or think the same or vote the same to belong to each other. Continuing in Romans, we have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be cheerful. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like the members of your family. Be the best. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Be happy in your hope. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. I think what that means is don't try to store up your manna. If you see a need and you have the resources to do it, that's why you have those resources. You don't have them to store up your manna. You have them so that all of God's people can be fed. Bless people who harass you. Bless. And don't curse them. And it's not mentioned here, I think probably because the writer of Romans thought maybe it should go without saying. But also don't harass people. (laughs) We've gotten into this culture where we feel like we always have to be proving our point. I'm so guilty of it. I mean, let's, let's all just don't. Let's just all quit. Be happy instead with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Don't tell them they're not supposed to be feeling that way. Cry with those who are crying. Be happy with those who are happy. Don't, don't be a killjoy. <laughs> don't remind them of all the terrible things in the world on their son's birthday. Be happy with those who are happy. Cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal. And don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. Let's be like Jesus. Let's figure out how we can go lower. It's okay to be gifted and prosperous. God wants that for us. Humility means practicing those gifts at floor level. There are two specific actions that a life of humility requires of us. And the first is is knowing God's character. You cannot begin to rely on his character if you do not know him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you know of him. Maybe you've heard stories But at this point, it's all just hearsay, and you're not sure you're prepared to go, like, all the way through with the trusting. God sees you there. God's not mad at you about it. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. 
God just needs you to be willing to start that relationship, wherever it leads. If that's you today, and you find yourself ready to know more, to know him, at least ready to start a relationship, raise your hand for me. Would you mind standing to your feet? Hang out there a minute. I've got one more group to call. The second action that a life of humility requires of us is surrender. Maybe you've had a relationship with God for quite a while. And the idea of his goodness is well developed in your heart. No problem knowing that he's good. But maybe there's a mountain of something propping you up that's keeping you from relying fully on him. Maybe it is pride. Maybe, like me, it's anxiety or worry. Maybe it's one of the attributes that Scott's been preaching on in the last few weeks. If that's you, God's calling you today to surrender Maybe you've surrendered before and need to surrender again. That's okay. When we sing the lyrics, here I am, down on my knees again, that is not a statement of failure. That is an acknowledgement. We are recognizing that we are in need of new mercies every day. And God is calling us, whatever it is that's standing in the way, whatever it is we need to surrender, God is calling us to throw it at him. Fling it away from you today and let him be the one who lifts you up. If that's you, if you're ready to surrender or surrender again and receive new mercy, from the one who loves and knows you best. Can you stand to your feet? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters who are still seated, remember that the individuals standing belong to you. They belong to you. Let's all bow our heads to the king. Great king of love, we come before you today aware that you hold the world in your hands and that as great and mighty and powerful as you are, you love us and you want us to know you better. For those of us who are standing to know you better, our hearts say yes to that relationship today. Our hearts open up. We're ready to know more. 
Whatever that means, whatever it looks like, God, we're ready. For those of us who are standing, we surrender. Whatever it is, whatever it is, which, whatever rocks we've piled up to be the mountain that we teeter on, God, we cast them all away. We fling them at you. Take our anxieties. We will not carry them anymore. We put them down at your feet and we will not go forward from this place and pick them back up. We thank you, Father, for your love, for your new mercies, for manna from heaven every day. We repent of trying to store it up. We repent of worry. It has no place in your kingdom. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, the name that is above all names, we say, Amen. Oh, friends, He is so good. He is so good. If you are in need of prayer, there are multiple ways to make that happen. Check the slide behind me or on your live stream. If you want someone to pray with you one-on-one, I'm going to be down here after service. Pastor, are you going to be down here? Pastor Albert will be down here. It's not the same when we pray. When we humbly petition the king who loves us. May the God of peace be with you as you go forth from this place today. And as always, be excellent to each other.